This evening we'll look at least somewhat deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of the heart, the mind. And beginning with a story, some years ago now when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't very far from IMS, and I'd go there to pay a visit to Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know of him. Maybe even some of you may have met him. His name translates as Maha, great, and Gosananda, sound of bliss. And Maha, as he was fondly called, uh, was from Cambodia. And he's considered the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for his Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago at approximately the age of 94. And he'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, really so rare. A being with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy to teach a three-day retreat with him up in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. We didn't actually know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for over a year or so. So I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being uh, such an old man, uh, there were things that he just didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing when he said this. And I said, well, out loud, I said, well, it must be quite a nose. And he said very directly and very sweetly, he responded, and he said, it's a good nose. During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at IMS, not long after that uh, Colorado retreat, I visited uh, Venerable Gosananda at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda, and I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who actually called me mum. He used to call me mum. <laughs> and at one point, uh, I asked him why he called me mum when in fact he was considerably older than me. 
And he responded by saying that we have all been each other's mothers at one point, and so your mom. <laughs> so that day, mom and grandfather sat, and we drank tea, and we laughed a bit, talked a little bit of history about his life, talked about the three-month retreat that I was uh, teaching, and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which, of course, was Venerable's favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart, the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being, or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and afterwards. My heart felt like it had been filled up, that it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward. An experience that would always continue on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, To my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha uh, Gosananda were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar to be taken back for all of the three-month yogis at IMS. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. This evening, as I've already mentioned, we'll explore generosity. The quality holding a very special place and special opportunity for all of us in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a relatively recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, and in particular generosity along with virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, effort, and resolve. This particular telling of this tale is adapted from the tale as it was told by Rafe Martin. It said that many Maha Kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India. 
and offer an evening of public talks revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were really very excited and felt deeply honored. And so to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk along through the village and then cover it with a piece of fine cloth. In the forest just outside of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence and friendliness, kindness, and great virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much earlier time was to be the future Buddha, in a much later time, excuse me, was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha, so to say. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before, leaving him with several generations of accumulated property and great wealth. And it's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. And as there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, why should I just remain idle? No, I'll leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life of a hermit eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Within a relatively short time, he gained a profound insight into the nature of things and bore a bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the activity in the village. And it's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet a fully realized one. And so he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workmen with the road, picking a, a particularly swampy stretch of low ground to fill. And he worked with a heart and a mind filled with light and joy repeating over and over to himself, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish the task, 
He heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light, light extending from the Buddha Dipankara and a soft golden glow surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So it's said that Sumedha spread his bark cloth over the soft, wet ground and lay down on top of it loosening and spreading his long matted hair he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud then he thought like the Buddha Dipankara I want to help all beings I'm determined despite all the difficulties and danger I'll never turn back I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot and looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He'll be successful. And in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men and children, the Buddha Dupankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He'll be a Buddha named Gautama. When he becomes a young man, he'll see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. Or milk rice. When, re, when renewed strength and energy, with renewed strength and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, <laughs> became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then continued, the Buddha Dipankara continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity 
filled with joy and a strength of purpose. And it said that, again, he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing towards his goal. We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. A process which very clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess and hoarding and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of the fear and attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive this seamless circle Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated, and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area and with a very big and bright smile on his face thrusts a bunch of yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China on my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with the Chinese family, who were very good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing, and I'd learned uh, in China that the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing some degree of attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. (laughs) Though actually feeling uh, a little bit like a one-handed giver uh, during my consideration uh, of doing this. And then finally deciding to give it to her. When the time came to actually give her the gift, It was with both hands and with an open heart. And at that point, it was really a joy, though in the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. 
a friend of mine waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at IMS. And they finally do come together. But about a week before the retreat uh, is to begin, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car and hands it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or really even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. The child is then led out of the circle to share the food and the drink with the hungry and the thirsty and the blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of summers ago now, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area here in New Mexico and hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing and food and all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely. At some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. We were told that the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. And of course, all of us are very aware of the various hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis and fires and natural disasters that have occurred around the world these past few years and the incredible outpouring of generosity offered in so many ways by so many people, person to person to person. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. 
And so you both give yourself the gift of this precious time and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings that are offered day by day as the retreat unfolds. And maybe at some point during this retreat you're moving ever so slowly and you don't feel pushed or don't feel hurried by anyone to speed up. Another gift gift given and received. Just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. And as they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monk's bowls. Imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother, father, older sister, or brother, and seeing this ritual, this offering every morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a very natural part of your life. And from the Buddha, if beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, They would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. In speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, the practice of the heart. Most of us in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder, the monastic training of the begging bowl, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. Nor do we regularly engage from the other side. 
in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, we reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And, to the contrary to what I just said, this retreat has really been quite special and wonderful in this regard, with so many meals generously offered as dana through the month. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture actually encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and to accumulate, and then to fixate and to cling to all of our accumulations, material accumulations, and the accumulations of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations, to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this quite pervasive and sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. In a poem um, regarding this called Kindness, by Naomi Shihab Nye. This was written in 1978 in Colombia. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything and feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend.
there isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches us and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness, interconnectedness, and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. And I think that as a culture, there's a deep and quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. And in relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today could very well be gone tomorrow or seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe even in this retreat, my spot in the meditation hall, my seat in the dining room, my walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth, the inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, and equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating and then fixating on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. And I'd like to share just a part of a short sutta um, from the Buddhist teachings. And this is uh, the uh, Devjana Sutta, or in English, Two People. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati at Jetta's Grove, 
at Anattapindika's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Buddha. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gautama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. We have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gautama. Instruct us, Master Gautama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha says, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds to allay your fears. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. When a house is on fire, this is the Buddha continuing, when a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged, said the Buddha. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, there are three kinds of given, giving spoken of. There's what, uh, what is called beggarly giving, which is when we give with one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we have. It's still mine. How I actually first began uh, giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. <clears throat> in this kind of giving... We might, have the, we might give the least of what we have, and afterwards we might even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. And we give open-heartedly, open-handedly, with both hands. We share what we have, because it feels natural and, and it feels appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. Then there's what is called kingly or queenly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves, in fact, to be only temporary caretakers of whatever's been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. In this, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is the true heart of generosity. And some words from 8th century Buddhist monk Shanti Deva. Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. (laughs) 
there's nothing to hold on to, to be held on to in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. And from Desmond Tutu. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on the behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as we all know, we don't always live with this purity and completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. This is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to be honest with ourselves, to honor and respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image that you might think it uh, to be a generous, a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's really important to recognize, honor, and respect your limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart. I had a strong lesson uh, regarding this about 25 years ago. My mother uh, hurt her leg, had a very serious leg injury, deeply infected with potential hospitalization. The wound needed cleaning on a daily basis so that she wouldn't have to go into the hospital. And so I volunteered to do this because no one else stepped up. There was some compassionate generosity in this, uh, but I really volunteered mostly because nobody else would do it in the family. At times during the process of this daily uh, cleaning of my mother's uh, infection, there was aversion. Aversion would come up, anger at her for uh, letting it get to this point. She didn't take care of it when it first happened. And at times there was, it was hard for me to be with her pain in the process that she experienced during the process. It was hard for me at times to open to her suffering. There was aversion at times to the smell of the wound, quite a strong smell. And then at times it would come up in my mind, well, she's the mom, I'm the child. And you can imagine the subsequent thoughts after that. But my mother had enormous gratitude, just enormous gratitude, even though she was in pain with the process at times. Her gratitude 
my gratitude evolved or developed in in relationship to her enormous gratitude for what I was doing to help her. And in the process, I was seeing all of the various mind states coming up and changing, coming and going, and I was, again, enormous gratitude came up for the practice. And a bond was created between my mother and I during that whole process. Old roles were bridged and let go of. So a great deal of learning during that time. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional kindness and compassion, when in fact we may be acting out of a fear of loss or fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we may give from a place of trying to avoid directly dealing with a particular person or situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and delusion, strengthening the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which in turn causes continued suffering in ourself and maybe also in the other person. And we may be creating what, creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not-self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here meaning an okayness about being alive in this life, just simply because here we are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness and an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness. This really must be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, the conditioned feelings of lack, There may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourselves away or lose ourselves in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving or support of others. And when this happens, we actually feel less whole, more depleted, and weaker, which is also often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance in regard to the real needs of others, along with a lack of awareness of our own needs. 
It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship to this on the scale of work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate beauty and to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level of life and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness. And our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. And looking at practice for a few moments, uh, the practice of generosity from another perspective. There's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes uh, identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or receive it graciously if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness even if they might be physically sick or distressed emotionally. 
So the practice is to take something very ordinary, something one might not think of as being very valuable, maybe like a potato or a turnip, and holding it in one hand, and then passing it to the other hand, and passing it back and forth, hand to hand, back and forth, until it gets easy. And then there are the higher practices. If one's motivated and inclined to continue the practice of generosity from this perspective, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally, and the giving symbolically develops into letting go, relinquishing, offering everything, all of the accumulations the outer material accumulations and the inner accumulations of habits and preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings. The practice in its final stage is done ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, and to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, a number of years ago, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering, which actually felt quite appropriate to me. And this is really what we're doing here, in our practice here, without the paraphernalia, learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant. And the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of really, truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, focused, mindful attention, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and equanimity, with unconditional acceptance. We learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated, mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of the breath all the way from its birth through its death. We're learning to receive life fully, to be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We're learning that this very life is our path to liberation and that our liberation is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva from our time, why do you give so much? 
why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. And through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. And I'd like to close this evening's talk with another story. About 28 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area of Michigan where I lived to teach us. One year, I invited him to come to stay in my home, the one that burned down. It was a small, very small, uh, old five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my sons and I were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and an old, well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. Wallace was the first one to get out, and he's quite a big man, about six foot three and big-boned, and he looked even bigger with his uh, boots, his uh, cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those cars in the circus that pull up in the center ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out. And one is amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. As we watched, seven people emerged from this little car, Wallace's helpers and members of his family. And it turned out then that there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. How will we all live and sleep in this tiny house, was the thought that came into my mind. Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. At night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 in the morning. Then it was time for a big dinner because no meals were to be taken through the afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and habits how I use the various spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences and other preferences. Wallace and one of the members of his family uh, smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. (laughs) People slept all over the place, as I mentioned. And the day began late in the morning with the late night, because of the late night sweat lodges. So at 1 a.m., it was dinner time. Each afternoon, the house was filled with 15 or 20 people coming by to listen as Wallace shared his teachings in a very casual, conversational way. 
And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats, and there would be bowls of food at the door or left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would cook up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night, Wallace and his friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. As we all sat together in a circle, each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them. And in in gratitude for sharing our space and our time and energy with them. And then Wallace spoke. He said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, he said, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, My son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like watching a movie playing backwards. Then the two of us walked back into the house and stood there in amazement. The seeming great expanse of our home, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow, internally, my son and I both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk with a poem by Mary Oliver called Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold, in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that's better than these light-filled bodies? All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving away one's gold.
and let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.